Welcome to Purim Panorama here at the database with Rabbi Yeshua Eisenberg. I'm very excited for this Purim special, and boy, do I have a shear lined up for you. If we can't finish it all right now in this sitting, then Be'ezra Hashem, we will do another part, but hopefully we'll be able to cover everything. But what I really wanted to focus on is the story of Purim as it emerges from the Megillah with some help from the Mepharshim, with some help from Chazal. But the main idea is to really understand the story in a way that we um, haven't understood it before because perhaps, I want to argue, in a certain sense, we really have never fully understood the story. Of course, one one, one of the challenges when you have a story that you know really well is that we take the story for granted for its details, for its components, and then all the important key questions that perhaps we should have asked but didn't because we've known the story to be the same as it was when we were three, four, five years old when we heard it for the first time. So we don't imagine the story in any other way. But if you consider the story, you consider the individuals and try to stand in their shoes, so you end up with a lot of questions and what I like to refer to as plot holes. And... I want to try to fill in what I think are the plot holes, and I want to do that in light of the characters. What do I mean? Now, obviously, we've got to be very careful when we say characters. That almost makes it sound like like this is a fairy tale, and obviously it's not. This is a real-life, true story, Um, and it's, it's a story of some of our ancestors, you know, people from Tanakh who were real people. But, of course, there is a literary aspect to the story of the Megillah, and... The way I broke down this particular shear, so normally in our Parsha Panorama series, what we have done is we would go through each Parsha based on the components, based on the chapters, um, or the sections, the topics that are in the Parsha. What I've decided to do for this particular shear is to actually break it down by individual. So we have a bunch of different players, or the cast, the characters, but really, obviously, the real-life people. And those are the ones that I wanted to focus on. From Achashverosh, to Vashti, to Mordechai, Hatzadik Mordechai, Yehudi, to Esther Hamalka, to Big Son and Seresh, to Haman Harasha, boo, and to Zeresh, also boo, and to Harvona. So these are really all the characters that I wanted to focus on. And there's a lot to be discussed for each character, And what I want us to try to understand, once again, is the story of the Megillah, but for the deeper meaning, and not just the deeper meaning, but the Pashapshat meaning, um, which will be the case for many of these ideas, but also the, the, not just the Pashapshat, but some of the Pshatim in the various Agadic ideas that are drawn out of the Megillah. So I want to try to better understand those particular themes, and hopefully... With this shear, you will have not only a greater understanding of the Purim story, but you'll have a greater understanding of the different lessons that we were actually meant to learn from that story. So, all that said, let's 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 jump in to this partial, uh, or rather, this Purim panorama shear. Okay, so among the different characters, I have. 
basically a set of questions that I wanted to focus on. So, for example, starting with Achashverosh, as the Megillah does, Achashverosh, who? Achashverosh, very funny, eh? Okay, so the question is, where exactly is Achashverosh holding? We know that he has this really long party, and at the very end of the party, he's really drunk. Um, when I say um, the end of the party, we really mean multiple days of a party. But what exactly is Achashverosh celebrating? And what, like, like what exactly happened? Um, it seems that Achashverosh, on the one hand, you know, is, is, this, is this king. It seems that it's pretty recent after his taking the throne. If, if only, in, a, you know, in the past few years, whatever, wherever it was, it seems to be the third year of his kingship, at least according to the Pashup Shah. But what exactly is Achashverosh um, doing? Like, what's his role? I grew up, you know, when I, when, I, when I was in nursery, I was told, not a good king, not a bad king, but a very, very silly, silly king. And that, that does sound like somebody who's drunk, but, um, you know, after um, a little bit more years of life experience and, and understanding the story a little bit better, I've been taught to see Achashverosh as a Russia in his own right, this seems to be how he's portrayed by Chazal. And where in the story do we really see, you know, the, the, this the side of Achashverosh? So here, here's, you know, that, that's one question. Another question, by the way, is if you, and this is fast-forwarding really very far into the story, we find that Achashverosh, he, um, you know, we, we know that the, the climax of the story is when perhaps when Esther goes into Achashverosh, um, to try to beseech and to try to supplicate before him so that he can remove the decree of Haman. And we know that that's not the first thing that Esther does. She has a little bit of a political setup, maybe a, some, there's some questions of, of, of suspicion about her herself being involved with Haman. We see hints to this in the, in the Gemara. But ultimately, she asks... Achashverosh to overturn Haman's decree. And we know that the whole Venohafechu tells us that the story flipped. Everything that was expected to happen turned the other way. But if you look really closely at the story, Achashverosh doesn't rescind the decree. He just gives over the ring to, to Mordechai and Esther. And it just kind of makes you wonder, like, is, is Achashverosh, like, apathetic about this? Like, is he kind of, like, is he, is he aloof? Is he kind of, like, removed from this? It was very clear what they wanted, and it almost seems like they weren't able to overturn it. I know that Rabbi Foreman pointed out in his, in his book that Achashverosh kind of just says, yeah, listen, whatever is written with the, the king's signet is not going to be overturned. So it's kind of strange that Achashverosh would, um, you know, would not be able to override his own rule, I guess. Or that Achashverosh is sticking to his guns. Whatever was signed with the ring is set in stone, meaning he wasn't going to really overturn um, Haman's decree, but he was going to add to it or allow Mordechai and Esther to add to it. So, for example, the Bnei Israel had the right to defend themselves, and then they would be able to fight the war too, and it wouldn't just be a full-out onslaught against them. But how comforting does that really sound? There was still there was still this war in the world, and especially in Shushan. And you would think that uh, Achashverosh, if, if if Esther and Mordechai had played all their cards well, and they and they they won this political you know, um, 3D game of chess or 4D chess, whatever it is, rather. But the point is that you would have expected that the, uh, the, the decree would be overturned wholesale and apparently wasn't. So, like, where is Achashverosh? Like, what is, like, what, what is his concern in all of this? 
Okay, so that's one, one question I want you to think about. Another question is regarding Vashti. So when we get to Vashti, so we see that apparently she has her own party going on, and it's special for women. At, at the first glance, this looks like it's very tsnias, right? We have the men's party here, the women's party here. Like, well, what exactly is Vashti's agenda? Why is she making this party? And we know from Chazal as well that Vashti is not a particularly righteous woman. In fact, she's pretty, pretty awful, a nasty woman. And she um, had done terrible things to Jewish women, um, to going as far as making them work on Shabbos and to make them work unclothed. And then, even though, you know, Chazal tells us about how she sprouts tzara'as and possibly even a tail, so... You know, the Pashup Shah and the Megillah, we don't get any of that. We just see that Achashverosh requests her to come to the party. He summons her. She says she doesn't want to come. And that's kind of like the end of Ashti. And you look at everything surrounding that, the whole first chapter of Megillah's Esther, we have this focus on not just, you know, Achashverosh versus Vashti, but from the advisors we see it's apparently a power struggle, a gender power struggle between men and women. That... They say, look, this is what all wives are going to start doing to their husbands. And we can't allow that to happen. So all women must respect their husbands. Mansplained the advisors to all of Shushan. So I guess the, the question is, what, what exactly is this doing? Like, th- this is the beginning of the Megillah. Like, what, what are we supposed to take away from that? Is Vashti, you know, this, this hero or this, maybe this heroine? Um, to be more accurate, for women, that she's, you know, going against the powerful man, against the patriarchy. Is, is, is that what Vashti's role is? And, you know, considering that she's not much of a role model, so what is her role in this particular gender power struggle? Like, what are we supposed to understand from that? So, that's for Achashverosh and for Vashti. Okay, fine. So, let's actually drop the anchor right here. We'll get on to some of the other characters later. But while we're on Achashverosh and Vashti, so Achashverosh is apparently celebrating his rule. He's celebrating the fact that he's the king. Because I'll tell us it's not just that, but he has the Kalim Shonim. That Achashverosh apparently has Kalim from the base of Mikdash, which he got from the previous kingdom, right? Because. Um, the originally Nebuchadnezzar had, and then Belshazzar had the Kalim from the Beis Hamikdash, which was destroyed by Babel. And the and not only that, but the the Gemara um, we spoke about this in Muslim minutes. But the Gemara says that Achashverosh wore the big day Kahuna. And when we when we get to Mordechai for the first time, we see that, and you know, we'll we'll come back to this when we get to Mordechai's role in all of this. But Mordechai, he is. Hagla Meir Shalayim. He was one of the he was one of the Ben um, He was one of the people who exiled himself, um, or was exiled from the original Beis Hamikdash. So we're we're you know if you don't realize this, you're missing the backdrop of the story. And Achashverosh in all of this is happy to know that the Jewish nation is not going to succeed. That. And the Gemara goes through how all the kings, um, the previous kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, they all had their own uh, calculations based on the prophecy from Yermia, which said that in 70 years the exile was going to end. 
question is, well, what, what's the beginning of those 70 years? So Achashverosh had his own calculation, and basically his calculation said that, oh, look, the 70 years are up, and, and look, uh, I'm still in charge. So it must be the prophecy is not true. And this, according to Chazal, is what Achashverosh is celebrating. This is why he's celebrating with the Big Day Kahuna, with the Kalim of the Beis Amikdash. He's celebrating a serious um, impression of a victory over the nations of the world, and especially Klal Yisrael. Now, because Achashverosh is so into his power, this might explain why he's very into whatever the signet ring signs and, and, and seals, that's it. And this shows you a little bit about the Rishos of Achashverosh. We'll come back to this. Now, how about his power struggle with, es- with, with uh, Vashti? Right, so the, the Malbim points out that at a certain point in the story, it says Hamalka Vashti instead of Vashti Hamalka. Now, Hamalka Vashti says, I'm the queen, meaning I come from royal blood. You don't come from royal blood, because Achashverosh, we know, did not come from royal blood, but he kind of bought his way in. He powered his way in. And this is, in fact, who Achashverosh was. He was someone, he was a power grabber. This was Achashverosh. You have to know that to understand who he was. And this is why when he says, I can summon the queen, I'm going to summon the queen to my party, the Gemara talks about how he was having an argument with, um, with the different... Um, uh, individuals at his party about which kind of women are prettier. Are, are, is it the the Median women? Is it is it is it, is it the women from um, from per, um, the Persian women? Is it the Babylonian women? Achashverosh was saying it's the Babylonian women, but the point is, and you know, this led to you know him summoning Vashti to come unclothed, just wearing the crown. And what we find from Chazal something very important. Because you can look at the story and you could say, look, Vashti is the heroine, she is the woman of power, all the respect for Vashti. You could say that. But if you understand that Chazal said that Shneim Niskavnu Lara, or Vera, I don't remember the exact Lashon, but the Gemara says that they both intended to do. Um, to do an act of pritzas. Achashverosh intended to have his, his naked wife come out, and Vashti intended to be the naked wife and come out show herself off. The only reason she could not and she fought the fight against Achashverosh was because she realized that at that moment she was ugly and you know not really um, good to show off. What does this show you? Well, what it first of all shows you is the irony of, and I'm not saying this is you know, that all women who, who claim to represent feminism uh, believe this or, or do this, but very often you have a lot of figures of feminism out there, and they'll talk about power to women and respect to women, and they don't even respect themselves. You see this woman, Vashti, who unclothes other women. Look at how she treats other women, and look at how she herself was willing to go out unclothed, if not for the fact that she had become so ugly. But is that that a woman that's asking for real respect? No, not really. She's just looking for personal power. And Achashverosh, on the one hand, on the other hand, I should say, is looking for power as well. This, I believe, is an important backdrop to the story of the Megillah, which is going to be about a hero, or rather a heroine, who, of course, is going to be a female, a woman. And the question you you might wonder is, who's right, Achashverosh or Vashti? And the answer is, they're both wrong. Power-hungry, tyrannical, evil man is not right. And a power-seeking, disgusting, nasty woman is also not correct.
the heroine of the story happens to be someone who wanted neither of these things. You know, she was a woman. She was someone who was humble, secretive, not looking for any extra respect, not looking for any extra power, and just doing what she was told by the God of Hador at the time, uh, uh, Mordechai. And this is what led to her success in not only being the queen, but being the savior for all of Klaistral. The whole backdrop for the story is who's the power with? Is it with the big, powerful, um, tyrannical man? Is it with the woman? Is it power to women? And it's not even about that, apparently. Apparently it's about whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, doing the right thing, being in the right place, and doing what you're supposed to do according to Ratzon Hashem, doing it with humility, and doing it with with uh, the, the utmost respect to the Das Torah, this is how Esther Hamalka succeeded. So if you want a female role model, so you'll find it in Esther Hamalka, in her tznias, in, in her devotion to the Ratzon Hashem. Okay, so now let's, let's move on to Mordechai and Esther. A lot to discuss regarding Mordechai and Esther. So Mordechai, we're introduced to him as Ish Yehudi Hayah B'Shushan Habira. And there are plenty of places throughout the Megillah where we, as a congregation, we actually praise Mordechai. We read the Pesukim out loud. And the, the Lavush quotes this minhag, the Shulchan Aruch brings down the minhag from, the, um, I think, the Lavush. And the question is, why exactly do we do this? So in the Mishnah Brura, it says that it's mainly to be mechanich, our children, which is a very fascinating explanation in its own right. But apparently, it sounds like we're setting the stage that you should realize that Mordechai is the hero. Uh, it's interesting that we don't sing this, uh, the praises of Esther Hamalka. Maybe it has something to do with the Tznias, Um unless you know you're one of those individuals who are going to say that has more to do with the patriarchy. Um, but um, you know, if, if you know anything about anything in Torah, you know that that there's a certain kind of display that's meant for a woman, and you can be the heroine, and you don't have to be in the limelight. And you know, those two things can both be true. But Mordechai is lauded as the hero of the story, at least the male, the, the male hero. And it makes you wonder, what, what in fact was Mordechai's role in all of this, in all of the heroism? Well, he was the one who gave Esther Hamalka the advice. He was the one that told her when and what to do and how to play her cards from where she was. So that's, that's pretty good. Can't argue. And according to the Midrashim, he was the one who led the children in, in learning Torah and, and davening and doing tshuva and, and leading the entire congregation of Kalei Israel. So he, he sounds pretty heroic. But consider this. Mordechai was the one who, yes, he, he picked up all the scraps from all the things that were about to happen to them from Haman. He was also the one that triggered Haman's anger, leading Haman to make his evil decree against all of the Bnei Israel. Right? So we know that Haman did not want to just target Mordechai. That would have looked too petty, so he tried to make it into a national affair. And you know, this is um, you know a great way that racism works and anti-Semitism. Basically, you find one target that you don't like, and then in order to justify and rationalize, um, you know, in, in a very Hitlerian way. You, so you say, oh, look, I'm, I'm really, what I'm really doing is, is, is ethical. I'm, uh, you, know, you, you, you create a philosophy and a moral behind what you're doing. 
and blame an entire nation of people. Now, we could talk in a moment about Mordechai's decision not to bow to Haman. Was it the right thing, wrong thing? Um, according to Chazal, definitely the wrong thing, as we'll get to. But consider that the decree only came because Mordechai was doing all these things. And had Mordechai bound to Haman, Haman would have never issued an evil decree against all of the Bnei Israel. So as much as Mordechai is the hero, it's kind of, you know, kind of seems like he's also the instigator, the troublemaker who started it all. Kind of reminds us of the question that we had addressed in the past in Parsha Panorama about um, Hashem taking us out of Mitzrayim. Of course, he was also the one that put us into Mitzrayim. And, you know, go back to Parsha Panorama for Parsha Shemos, and, you know, you can hear more about that question. But I'm, I'm now daring to ask that question here about Mordechai. So that's, you know, that, that, that's one question when we get to Mordechai. Another question when we get to Esther Hamalka. So she's, you know, she, she's interesting in her own right, especially because Esther, she, um, you know, she has many names, right? She's, uh, she's Esther, obviously. She's Hadassah, which one's her real name. So the Gemara has that discussion. Pashapshat, her real name is Hadassah. Esther is her nickname to say that she's hidden. But not only that, but you know, sometimes um, you know, on a gravestone, so you'll have someone who is uh, a father, a son, a cousin, an uncle, um, and, and you know, it talks about all their different titles. Well, Esther Malka had a bunch of different titles besides her being queen. She was cousin to Mordechai. She was perhaps, or the, the Megillah says, a daughter to Mordechai. And apparently she was... A wife to Mordechai, says the Gemara, and Rashi quotes us right there. Al-Tikre Bas, don't read it as daughter, Ella Bias. And the Torah Tamima goes at length to explain how the Gemara understands, based on, based on syntax, based on context, how you understand from the Pasuk and from the extra words in the Pasuk that Esther Hamalka was actually the wife of Mordechai, not just... A simple daughter, not just a cousin, but he took her as a wife. So it, it does strike us as strange. It's certainly not the simplest read in the Pasuk, even though the Torah Tamima does a job to explain how it could be understood from the basic reading. And it just it makes you kind of wonder, like, what, what, what do we gain from that? And, you know, in, in reading the, the story of the Megillah, what do we gain from knowing this possibility that Esther was the wife of Mordechai. It does strike us as strange also to say that, you know, on the one hand, he's raising her like a daughter, and even though it's the... Like, I, like do you look at these two pshatim at the same time? Do you say that she was like his daughter, but also like his wife? So actually, I think the Torah Tamima says this, that... Um, or maybe it might have been the Ben Yoyada. I'm trying to... I don't remember for sure now. But it says that, you know, why would she be called a daughter? So some said that it maybe was for Tznias. Some say that it was for endearment. You know, like Lahavdil, um, um, but maybe also related Lamashal. You might a, a person might call their spouse something, you know, like a sweet name, like 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 baby or like da- like daughter. And we find this in Shir Hashir, and we find, um, you know, calling even a wife calling her a sister, so um, or or things to that effect, Rayasi, right, Samosi, and everything else in the Simcha Liner song. Um, but the but the point is, 
that it might be a term of endearment that she was given for Mordechai, but what, what really do we gain from this understanding? Also, while we're here, we know that Mordechai tells Esther not to reveal her identity, at least in the beginning of the story. Later he says, okay, um, you know, now it's time for you to speak up. And we spoke about this in Musr Minutes. We spoke about um, exactly when was the right time and how this affects the, the midah of of, of Binyamin, of Shevet Binyamin, of, of silence, the shtika, which was inherited from Rachel Imenu. And maybe we'll come back to that. But what I want to start with is, why did Mordechai have Esther hide her identity in the first place? Uh, like the, 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 it's kind of strange. It's not so clear. Mepharshim struggled with this. Like what was, you know, we know in hindsight what the benefit of that was, that, you know, later when Ahasuerus finally found out that she was a Jew, he was willing to overturn the decree and everything worked out really well. But what, what was Mordechai's intention at the time? Mordechai did not know that, this, that Haman was going to decree something against the entire Jewish nation, that Mordechai would say, oh, let me, you know, let me... Um, Save, save this. Uh, my, I, this will be my trick up my sleeve. The ace in the hole. You know, I'll have this one ready. Um, Esther will be, you know, the, um, you know, will be um, a hidden Jew. No one will know about it. And then later, she's going to reveal herself. How did? Uh, where did Mordechai get any of this information? What was going to be in the future? How did he know this? As I think some of the mafarshim say, yeah, he must have had some kind of racha kodesh that he, for some reason, he knew this was the right thing. It's, it's hard to understand why he would have her do this. Okay, so let's go, um, before we move on to some of the other characters, we already did Achashverosh and Vashti, now we're moving on to Mordechai and Esther. So let's go back to Mordechai being the instigator in all of this. So one thing that we seem to see about Mordechai and Esther is that Mordechai and Esther, um, apparently, they were the safest Jews. They were the safest individual Jews, considering how Esther became the queen and what, what harm is going to happen to her. And Mordechai was actually, you know, he, was a, um, he might have been a viceroy, maybe not um, at a certain point, not as high up in the ranks as Haman, but at the very least he was a courtier to Ahasuerus. He was elevated um, to, the, to, the, you know, to a high level in Ahasuerus' court. So they, like, you, can't, you can't imagine any bad thing was ever going to happen to them. It strengthens the question of Mordechai putting the rest of Klaistral in danger because Mordechai might have been safe, but look what he was doing to the rest of the Jewish nation. You know, the, the friction, the animus that, that he created with Haman. So that kind of put everyone in harm's way because now Haman's decreeing against all of them. So in terms of, you know, whether or not it was the appropriate thing for Mordechai to not bow to Haman... So this is very clear from Chazal that this was most appropriate because either Haman made himself into a god, Haman was wearing an idol, and the, the, the Gemara points out that the Megillah goes out of its way to tell us the reason why Mordechai wouldn't bow is specifically because he was a Yehudi. Now, we don't have that term, um, a Jew, a Yehudi. We don't have that term um, often in Tanakh. It has its, you know, it's, um, it's most famous from the Megillah, like Yehudim Haisa Ora, but most of the time they're called Kla Yisrael, the Bnei Yisrael, Am Yisrael. Um, at least in Tanakh, it's, they're known by the name Israel. They, they had been known by the name Ivrim as Hebrews, but this is a new one. 
And the Gemara highlights that Yehudi, the Lashon, which also is a Lashon of Hodah, it's a Lashon of Thanks, is also a Lashon that is symbolic um, of rejecting Avodazara, speaking out against Avodazara. And meaning that it's fundamental to uh, a Jew, this, this component of thanks and acknowledgement of who the real God is. And the Gemara quotes various proofs throughout Tanakh. You might look at the story of the Megillah and say, oh, I, I don't see the proof to this. But you can't look at the Megillah by itself. It's a book in Tanakh. You compare it to other places in Tanakh. And the Gemara has various sources to suggest that Yehudi is a Lushan of anti-Vodazara. And if, if Mordechai was... Uh, was going against the Zarah here, so that's obviously, you know, he didn't really have a choice. Now, the question is, was it Mamash Zarah? Was it more like the Tzalem, the, the image, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had, which wasn't the Zarah according to many Mephorshim? And Yechanan, Yazariah, Mishal, in Sefer Daniel, look it up there, um, they did not, they were not willing to bow, they ended up being thrown to a fiery furnace and they lived to tell the tale. But the Gemara goes on, and the Mepharshim, we gave a shir on this earlier in the year in Real Talk Torah. We were talking about the frogs in Parshas Vaira, and what Achananya, Zarya, Mishal learned from the frogs that coincided with Dafiomi. But were they allowed to give up their lives? Was it Mamash Avodazara? So, what, like, you know, we can make the argument. I mean, we, we don't really know because the, the, the Megillah does not go out of its way and tell us that there was an idol, and yet Mordechai still was not budging. Yom Yom, um, he, and he wouldn't give in. Right, some, uh, some like to point out that the, the Gemara really pointed this out first, that the, the, the Yom Yom which, um, and, and Mordechai's refusal parallels Yosef's refusal when it came to Aishas Potiphar. A lot of connections between uh, Mordechai and Yosef. Um, um, not for now, maybe we'll, we'll make one more reference to it later, but but the, the idea that Yosef's test was against adultery, possibly what can be equal to a test of adultery, certainly in this context there's no adultery, but maybe there was in fact idolatry, which is really adultery against Hashem. But assuming that the main thing here is, you know, let's say there is idolatry that, that, that was, was in question here. Apparently, it's not the main focus of the Megillah, because the Megillah won't say those words. But apparently, you do have to know something about this, and that is that Mordechai is... And from Chazal, you you get this idea as well, that Mordechai is just completely in rejection of Haman. He's completely in rejection of... of, uh, of, of Achashverosh, it seems. Um, at least, and when we say Achashverosh, and we know that Mordechai is going to save Achashverosh's life, we'll come back to that as well, but in so doing, so Mordechai, um, well, what's his main problem? You get, you know, the Gemara is very clear. He was very anti the Bnei Israel's involvement in Ahasuerus's party. The Gemara talks about what, what exactly was wrong with the party. Was that the food wasn't kosher? It was kosher. The drinking, was it kosher, not kosher? Even if everything was kosher, even if everything was glot, does not actually mean that the party was appropriate. Consider how the, what the party was celebrating. Sometimes, you know, this is a this is a, a a modern Jewish challenge of should I be involved with these people? Should I go to that party, that holiday party, that that party at the workplace? This party, you know, whatever it's a, it's a it's a, it's a it's a city event. It's a it's a it's a it's a sports event. And here's the question: What are they celebrating there? If they're celebrating something, 
that's anti-Torah, that's anti-Ratzon Hashem, maybe you don't belong there. And Ahasuerus' party was literally celebrating the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and, the, and for them, the hopefully never will be re- rebuilt Beis HaMikdash. And the, the, you know, this is what Ahasuerus had hoped. And people you know, who didn't want to make waves were going to this party. Now you'll say, okay, but look what Mordechai caused to happen. He caused a decree against the Bnei Israel. I want to make the argument right now that Mordechai was not the one who caused the decree against the Bnei Israel. It's not my argument, it's Chazal's argument. The decree came specifically from the fact that the Bnei Israel went and drank at Ahasuerus' party. And you might look at Mordechai and you'll say, oh, Mordechai, this is all your fault. And yet, we go out of our way to laud Mordechai. We read the praise of Mordechai because guess what? We know for probably from Mordechai's own words that no one would have been saved. No one would have been safe even if Mordechai had done everything that Haman wanted him to do. And you know where the proof is? The proof is in his words to Esther, but in the reverse. He tells Esther, which is really fascinating, he says, we don't really need you. He says, Ravach v'hatzala will come from somewhere else if you're silent right now. But the Jews are going to be saved eventually, says Mordechai. But you need to, you know, right now, and we'll have to come back to this, you need to speak up for yourself. The schus that you need for your own family, for your own shevet, says Mordechai Esther, that's why you need to speak up. Now, these words are dubious, and we'll have to return to them. But in the meantime, for Mordechai this message can be used in the reverse. That if the Bnei Israel deserve to be punished, so ruination and retribution will come from anywhere. You'll say, oh, Mordechai, this is all your fault for, for being so brazen and, and, and being so bold. Just you know, do, you know, do, do what you're supposed to do, Mordechai, and stop, stop causing, oh, Hashem, as some people might put it. And the answer is no. Why did this all happen? Because you went to Ahasuerus' party, because you embraced an idolater. This is, this is why everything happened. The Gemara goes um, as far as to say that the, the, the transfer of Ahasuerus' ring to Haman was specifically to create that, that, that burst and that switch for, for, um, to tshuva and tefillah and rededication to Hashem that the ring being transferred to Haman turns more hearts back to Hashem than the words of Kama Nevi'im. How many prophets who tried to get the Bnei Israel away from idolatry? And only now. That's not something Mordechai did. And you could read the whole story and not realize it. And you could think it's all Mordechai's fault. But we, we already knew that Mordechai was the hero, but now we could appreciate, in, in fact, how he was. And related to this, we get to Esther. So, what exactly do we gain from the fact that Esther might have been his wife? So, we learn a lot of halachos, actually, about what, you know, what happens to a marriage when a woman is unfaithful to her husband. Most of the time that Esther went into Ahasuerus, so it was, apparently, it was basically by force. And we you know, Karka Olam, as the Gemara says, that... She was never an active party when she was with Ahasuerus. But at the time that Mordechai said, Esther, it's your time to go in, so at that point, 
that was her going and willingly. Thus, kasher avadati avadati, which some say means that I'm going to be lost in this world and I'll be lost in the next world for this incredible avera that I'm about to do, to go into Achashverosh, for, 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 for relations. Also, kasher avadati avadati, I, you know, I, I, may be, I may be killed, and even if I'm not killed, I'll never be able to be with you again. Ach, so, uh, so Mordechai could have groomed Esther Hamalka to be a wonderful Eved Hashem, and he told her to keep quiet. And maybe the reason to keep quiet, you could say, is because of the bizayon of her being married to Achashverosh among Klal Yisrael. Maybe it's because Mordechai, using the backdrop of Achashverosh's party, Mordechai knew that Achashverosh already was not a fan of the Bnei Yisrael, even if Haman was going to make it worse. But Achashverosh was already happy to secure his crown. And if he had any knowledge of the fact that Esther Hamalka was a Jew, that this might be the rise for the Bnei Yisrael, maybe Achashverosh would have said something otherwise. Some of Farshim say that Esther Hamalka, since she was from Shol HaMelech, she was a descendant, that she had royal blood, and, um, and Mordechai really tried to avoid um, 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 Esther being married to Achashverosh, so originally he told her to keep it a secret. But the, the, the Midrash says that Esther um, grasped and seized the Midah of her mother, Rachel Imenu, which was Shdika, right? We said that Shol HaMelech mastered the Midah of Shdika to be quiet. Binyamin, you know, he... Um, he um, he, he ha- his stone on the Choshen is Yoshfei, which the Midrash Hagodah says, Yeshpeh, he has a mouth. doesn't mean you have to speak up all the time just because you have a mouth. So the general Midah is to be quiet. You don't, you know, we know that when it came to Vashti, Vashti was very big into her own royalty. And maybe if Esther was going to survive, she had to just keep quiet, be secretive, be tzniyas about this. And Mordechai may not have known what was going to come, but he said, you know, we, you know, the more secrets we have, perhaps the better for now. And this is exactly what, what Mordechai had in mind for Esther, obviously until a certain point. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to come back to Mordechai and Esther. We're going to move on to Big Son and Sarish. So when we move on to Big Son and Sarish. The big question is that you know they are they really important or are they just side characters? Why is their story important? So if you read through the story, you'll realize pretty quickly that they are the reason for Mordechai's esteem. Right? That Mordechai spoke up. He heard what their plan was to kill Achashverosh. The Midrash actually, the Tertimio picks up on this, that um, just like the butler and the baker, um, Paro got mad at them, and that was for the sake of Yosef's ascent to the throne. So the same thing with Mordechai, that, um, that, that Achashverosh's, or um, that the, the relationship between Achashverosh and these two courtiers of Big Son and Sarash was, uh, was set up so that, that Mordechai can eventually reach the throne. He could reach a higher level of, ro- of royalty to be able to save the Bnei Yisrael. Of course, this gave uh, th- th- this political maneuver by Mordechai ended up being very helpful. But again, going back to what they had known at the time, right? Mordechai spoke up. Here's a question: What if Mordechai didn't speak up? He heard they were planning to kill Achashverosh. 
Achashverosh, this monster, is married to, to, to Mordechai's cousin, daughter, and wife, Esther. And couldn't Mordechai have just, you know, let Big Son and Sarish kill Achashverosh? Like, what was, what, what was the point in speaking up? And yet, Mordechai speaks up. Right? So, what exactly does Mordechai have in mind? It seems like Mordechai, you know, asked himself, you know, why am I privy to this information? Maybe I'm supposed to do something about it. What would have happened if Achashverosh died? Right? Achashverosh is the one who's celebrating the fact that there's no base on Mikdash. Let the guy die. Let the evil creep die. But Mordechai realized, perhaps, Esther Hamalka is the queen now. Right? She's the Malka. And maybe there's a reason for that. And maybe there's a reason why Mordechai is gain, you know, Mordechai knows this information. Mordechai decides to speak up and say something. Could you imagine maybe if Mordechai did not speak up and Achashverosh died, the second to the king who, um, you know, uh, who maybe, maybe there would have been a, a battle, um, a, a contention, a competition for the throne, but Haman was pretty up there. Now, the truth is that uh, the, I think Chazal say that Haman was promoted specifically after Esther uh, saved um, Achashverosh with Mordechai's help from Big Son and Saresh, and, and, and Achashverosh said, oh, well, you know, Haman was the one that came up with the idea of the beauty pageant to secure Esther Hamalka for the throne. So, you know, you, you have to wonder, if Achashverosh died, would, would Haman have taken the throne? So, it's, we don't know. Maybe it's possible. But what we do know is that Mordechai decided to speak up. Now, Big Son and Sarish are the reason why Mordechai ended up coming to power. Now, something very fascinating about Mordechai. We were wondering, you know, why he first tells Esther to be quiet. Then he tells her, okay, you're going to engage in self-sacrifice. You're going to say who you are. You're going to go into Achashverosh. So I took a look at something called the Krovates. The Krovates is a special tefillah that some people, it's, it's actually a form of krovos. We spoke about this in the Parsha Panorama Dalad Parshios series, which is not quite finished yet. And we spoke about um, these different tefillos that are called krovos. So the krovates is a, is a form of krovos. It actually stands for Korina Vishuva Bealei Tzadikim. And this, uh, the, this, the, this tefillah is very poetic, Talk, you know, it breaks down different aspects of the story of the Megillah, and it refers to Mordechai as Aryeh ben Zev, the lion, the son of the wolf. Now, the wolf we know is is, is Binyamin, but the Aryeh that sounds like Yehuda, the lion. And we know that Mordechai is known as both an Ishimini, he's also known as a Yehudi, which sounds like he's from Yehuda. The Gemara struggles to explain what this Lashon Yehudi is. We said earlier that it means to reject idolatry. Maybe that Mordechai had, you know, Mordechai's lineage was split between his parents. So part Yehudi, part Yemini. But it's not, it's not, it's not typical for, the, for, any, for anywhere in Tanakh to trace lineage by the mother. And his mother was from Yehuda, apparently. So well, why do we focus on this? 
So the truth is, the Midrashim talk about, we mentioned earlier, the Midah of Shtika. That's the trademark of Rachel Imenu. Well, there's a parallel Midrash that says that the trademark of Leah was actually Hoda'a. And we know that her son Yehuda, obviously, is marked by Hoda'a. Shtika is silence, but Hoda'a means to speak out, to do something, to acknowledge, to, to call something out. And maybe in, in this context, we had calling out idolatry. But we see that Mordechai apparently was constantly balancing Yemini and Yehudi, balancing Binyamin and Yehuda, balancing Rachel and Leah, balancing Shtika and Hoda. Right, we've heard of the concept of Shtika Kehoda, but the idea of Rachel being the Shtika, Leah being the Hoda, there's a time to be quiet, there's a time to speak out. And most of the time, Mordechai said to Esther, right now, you will succeed as someone who is quiet, because that's how Rachel succeeds. But there's a certain time where he says, you're going to do the opposite of what you're used to. Mordechai does this with Big Son and Sarish. He calls out. He says what's going to happen instead of keeping it a secret. And then when it came to his azus, his brazenness against Haman, he could have just been secreti, um, and, you know, he could have, he could have, um, or discreet is actually the word I want to use. Um, secreet means to, to, you know, well, anyway, not, not for now. Uh, but he could have been discreet. He could have been Sanua about. He didn't have to make waves. He could have been like Shaul and Melech against Agag, which was obviously a mistake. There's a time to speak out. There's a time to be brazen. There's a time to go v'nahavachu. And this is what Mordechai does. At a certain point, he says to Esther, you're going to do the same. You're going to do something that you're not used to. Mordechai says, you and I, you, you think we're both safe? You think that we're the safest two Jews? Says Mordechai, if Hashem wants bad things to happen to Kalal Yisrael, just because we're in the kingdom does not mean that we're going to be safe either. And he says, don't think you'll be safe just because you're the queen. Oh, but Haman is not targeting her. Achashverosh would never let anything bad happen to her. Yeah, but that's not how it works here. There's Heshtadlis and there's Bitachon, and both recognizing that you have a role. And Mordechai says, our Heshtadlis now is you're going to do something you're going, to, you're going to engage in an Avera Lashma. And this is because it's your only choice to save Klaistral. This is a very intense Vinahavach, and you've got to be careful because Avera Lashma, there's a whole sugya, the Gemara in Hurrius talks about this with Yael and Sisra, a separate discussion. But the point is that Mordechai is having her engage in an incredibly um, not intuitive, not, really not Jewish kind of a behavior. But he's doing this in the spirit of it's not, you know, now's not the time to keep quiet. Now is the time to speak up. And kasher avadati avadati. Yeah, you know what? We, you, we might not be able to be together anymore, but this is what we have to do to save the people, to save Klan Yisrael. So Mordechai, on the one hand, is a Yemini. On the other hand, he's a Yehudi. On the one hand, he is the Aryeh. And on the other hand, he's the Ben Ze'ev. He is both the lion and the wolf. And Esther Hamalka has to follow his lead in this, in this uh, endeavor, this really holy endeavor. Okay, so now, now that we've gone through Achashverosh, Vashti, we got to Mordechai, Esther, Big Son, and Sarash, we have three more human characters I want to focus on. So we have Haman. Ooh, yeah, okay, we have Haman. Now, when it comes to Haman, so 
Haman seems to be a man of this unhinged narcissism. And so unhinged it is, it translates into this decree of genocide that, that, that he intends. Now, what I want to focus on is, you know, we, considering Parsha Zachor, considering Amalek, you know, that's the story that Chazal wants us to see, that there's a larger panorama, if you will, that it, this is not just about one story, a little story that happened in a, in a, in a village called Shushan, or a country called Shushan, or a province. That, that, that's not what this is about, but this is about a larger war of Yaakov versus Esav, right? You look at the Slichas for Tainas Esther. This is about Klaistral versus Amalek. So, that being the case, you would expect, you know, a little bit more explicit, um, um, I guess, uh, um, reference to that in the Megillah more than just the fact that Haman is called an Agagi, which is not insignificant, it's certainly significant. But if you look at the story, it doesn't look like Haman's biggest concern is, oh yeah, I'm a Malik and I better kill out the Jews. It starts off really with, you know, Haman just wants everyone to bow to him. We have a king's decree. And Mordechai obviously doesn't want to, even though the king said that he should bow. I've, I've heard an approach from uh, multiple contemporary scholars. I, I have respect for them, but I, I don't particularly respect this approach. They're trying to say that it was really out of deference to Achashverosh that Mordechai didn't bow to Haman. It's obviously not supported by Chazal, but um, you know the, the, the idea that this was the king's decree, you need a, um, it's Morid B'malchus, really, if Mordechai's not going to do it, and, it, and you'll say, oh, he's doing it to respect Achashverosh, that doesn't really fit with Achashverosh's command that he bow to Haman. So, but the point is that Haman is just, you know, he's a, he, he wants Mordechai to bow. He doesn't even notice Mordechai until people call him out. People say, oh, look, Haman, you know that guy Mordechai? He's not bowing. And then Haman says, Oh, you know, like, I'm angry, I don't, I, I don't like this, and therefore I'm going to kill all of the Jews because it was petty in his eyes. I mean, you know, he, kind of, he kind of spurned the, the idea of just targeting Mordechai because that doesn't look really good, that, that you know, like, I, I'm being a baby that this one guy won't bow to me, and I don't want to give Mordechai any credit. So let's, let's make it a Jewish problem. So Chazal actually say, um, the, the Torah Tamimah quotes this Midrash as well, that, that Mordechai actually had some counsel from other Rabbanim, other, uh, other colleagues and contemporaries, and eventually other people stopped, uh, you know, didn't want to bow to Haman anymore either. But we're going to go with, we're, we're going we're gonna to fall back to Pashup Shat, that Mordechai is not bowing. If you look at Haman, it just seems like, yeah, he's just a petty narcissist. And yes, you know, he's, a, he's an egomaniac to the point that it can become genocide, but it doesn't sound like Haman intrinsically had it in for the Jews. It was just more indirect. It was more Bederach Agav. It was more roundabout. So it makes you wonder how much of this is Amalek versus Klaistral versus um, really just a story of a, a cranky man named Haman who you know, didn't get his lollipop. So which one is it? And if you go back to our Parsha um, panorama for Parsha Zachor, we addressed this a little bit. But the idea that, of course, it was so much more. The metaphysical battle was there. Haman, at the time, maybe did not care so much for the Jews. But once he realized it was the Jewish nation, he says, oh, you know, like there's a reason why I, I don't like this Mordechai, and it's not just because it's Mordechai, but it's because of his people. It could be that 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 there there was this dormant anti-Semitism that 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 came up to the surface, 
I'm not against that. But you could also say, in addition to this idea, that the whole concept of vayivez, right, which which is borrowed from Esav, who spurned the birthright. We spoke about the cognitive dissonance that once you make a decision that oh this birthright I don't care about it. So you know once you sell it, then you're able to develop that attitude of oh yeah like you start coming up with ideological reasons why the birthright is a bad idea, even though it was a bad deal on his part. So same thing for Haman. Borrowed right from his great-grandfather Esav, Haman's mentality became that the one thing I, I, I can't have, it must be I have a really good reason, a really rational and excellent reason for this, even though it was completely irrational. Because Haman's Haman's ego gets pressed and pressed and pressed, and the more elevated he is, the more prone he is to getting angry. Right? And this this actually speaks to what Esther Hamalka was trying to do by building up Haman's ego, inviting Haman to all these parties. And then every time Haman would come out of these parties, he would be on cloud nine until seeing Mordechai. The Gemara talks about Haman min Torah minayin. Where do you find a reference to Haman in the Torah? And it's Hamin ha'etz, hey mem nun. Hamin ha'etz, Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? So Hamin references the idea that you can have everything in the world, and the one thing you can't have, you don't, you, and you can't have it, and you're going to try to get it anyway. The thing that's not for you. This is what Adam did in Gan Eden when it came to the fruit from the Etadas, and the same tree, so to speak, Haman gets hanged on. And he gets hung up on that he can't get this one Jew Mordechai to bow to him. Haman's downfall comes from his own ego. And part of it is, 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 is a, an Amaleki, an ace of true ideology. So there, 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 there does not have to be any contradictions here between the petty narcissist that is Haman and the ego maniac, genocidal maniac, and the seed of Amalek. All this can be true at the same time. Now, that's a little bit about Haman, and we're going to come back to Haman. But before we do, let's focus on his Azer Konegdo, Zeresh. So, there are two scenes that we find Zeresh in. And when we get to Zeresh, it's very, very fascinating, because the first time we meet Zeresh, it's when... Haman is coming out of, and I, I believe this is the first time we see her, Haman's coming out of his party with Esther and Ahasuerosh, right? And when that happens, Haman is so upset because he just saw Mordechai. And Vayimale Haman Chemach. Haman is filled with this wrath, this burning wrath. So Haman comes home, and you see the desperation, the like the, the pathetic Haman at home. It says that he told the story of all of his wealth and his riches to his family. Like, could you imagine this? What a creep. He's telling his family about all of his riches. He's like, look what I have. Look at all these things. And none of this is worth anything to me. Because that Mordechai. Like, dude, get a life. But because of this one irrational thing, so the, the Megillah says that Haman spoke to Zeresh v'chol ohavav, 
Zeresh and his beloved ones, his loved ones. These were the ones that gave him the Eitzah. If you're really that mad, and by the way, this is already after Haman succeeded in getting an acquiescence from Achashverosh to wipe out the Jews. So everything, you know, you know, he, he's going to get what he wants, or at least so he thinks at this point in time. And yet he still can't get over Mordechai. He says, "I got to do something." So they say, "Listen, if you, if you're really upset, then you can just hang hang Mordechai in a tree." You know, just, you just kill Mordechai specially by himself. Kill the Jews too, but you, you have a special death for Mordechai. Now, later in the story, we meet Zeresh again. And Zeresh, um, and this is after um, when, when Haman has, you know, we, we, ha- we, we find the scene where Haman comes into Achashverosh. Achashverosh is having trouble sleeping, right? Right, the king's sleep is disturbed, right? Whether it's reference to Hashem or it's reference to Achashverosh. So either way, Achashverosh wants to celebrate Mordechai because of what he did when it came to Big Son and Seresh. Haman thinks that he's going to be celebrated. We know the story. And then Haman gets trash thrown on him. Fine. After that, Haman is, is you know, when Haman's about to go to the next party that he was invited to by Esther... He comes home and he's like, oh my gosh, like, this is the worst thing. Like, I got the exact opposite of what I wanted. You know, trash and excrement being thrown at me. That's the opposite of what most of us want. But when, it, when that time came, so Achash, so Haman uh, said, what, what am I going to do? At that time, he gets a response, not from Zeresh V'chol Ohavav, but he gets it from Zeresh V'chol Chachamav. Zeresh and all of his wise ones. Zeresh is giving him advice to two different scenes. In the second scene, it's, it's not Zeresh and the loved ones, it's Zeresh and the wise ones. And they say, listen, you have to, you know, you're going to fall before him. Because if he's from Zerah Yehudi, she says, you're really not going to win. And some say that this is a reference to the fact that, you know, it's a, that Haman later actually no fail, he's going to fall. When he, when, he, when he tries to beg for mercy from Esther and the Malach pushes him onto her, which um, arouses... Um, the anger of Achashverosh, who already had suspicion that Haman was was having some kind of affair with uh, with Esther, but some say that this was Zeresh's advice that if you you know if he, you're going to lose unless you beg for mercy, but, and the Jews are Gomli Chasadim the Rachmanim and Baishanim, just like Agag was able to get uh, to get mercy from Shaul, you'll be able to get mercy from them. But you have to beg, you have to lower yourself, otherwise you're going to lose. This is the second advice that Zeresh gives to Haman. And I want to focus on the difference between these two pieces of advice and who who Zeresh is. Because apparently Zeresh has a dual role. And really, this is what all wives can theoretically be. The first time Haman comes into Zeresh, he's not quite desperate yet. In fact, Haman is on top of the world with the one exception that he doesn't have Mordechai bowing at his feet. When Haman comes to Zeresh the second time, Haman just had trash thrown on him, and he paraded Mordechai around town, where Haman was really on the bottom. So the difference is not just between the advice, but Haman's position at the time. Is Haman up or is Haman down? Now, consider the advice of hanging Mordechai on the tree. Consider how dumb that advice was. If there was one Jew who was safe, who was not going to be touched, besides for Esther, we said already, the safest one was Mordechai. Mordechai was a courtier to the king. But, you know, if Haman was smart, he would have just backed off, let Mordechai not bow, whatever. You're not going to get Mordechai to bow. 
just just forget about it. You have everything else. But because Bukhazai and Nanashavali, Haman's irrational obsession with Mordechai, because of that, he wasn't seeking rational advice. He wants to know from his loved ones the emotional aspect. How can I soothe my emotions? Because that's what I can't get over right now. So instead of giving him a wise response, his Azar Kanegdo says, Honey, what will make you happy? This, you know, I'm sure you'd be most happy if Mordechai were hanged on a tree. And as irrational as the idea was, we, you know, we know that Achashverosh had so much respect for Mordechai, there was no way this was ever going to happen. And yet, Haman went with it. Later, when Haman is losing, and Haman is desperate, he's not looking for his ohavav to give him what emotionally will make him feel better. Because at this point, Haman realizes, I'm about to lose everything. What do I do? Now he wants to hear from his wise ones. He wants rational advice now. And really, you know, it depends what you're looking for. Zeresh was the one who pushed him all the way. If not for Haman's irrational obsession with Mordechai, guess what? None of this would have happened. It, you know, he, he, he could have killed out all the Jews. Think about this. Because later, Harvona is going to use this information that, oh, by the way, you know Haman wants to kill Mordechai? And that, that, put, that, that was this hay, that's, that, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and, and Ahasuerus says, let's put Haman on that gallows. Because, again... If, if, if Haman was not planning on doing this, that, that, that might have, you know, his own irrational obsession was the straw that broke the camel's back because he could have possibly succeeded in getting all the Jews killed if not for his obsession with Mordechai. His obsession with Mordechai, which we said was what caused all the trouble in the first place, is actually what ends up saving everybody. But the point is that you look at these two pieces of advice, this is the role of Zeresh. Now we have one more person to focus on, and then we will finish. And that person is Charvona. Did you know that it's brought down in the Shulchan Aruch that when, you know, on, on Leo Purim, we're supposed to say the, the piyot of Shoshanas Yaakov, it's brought down in the Shulchan Aruch to say it, and among saying Arurhamon and Baruch Mordechai, these are all things you're supposed to say, it says that you're supposed to say the words Vecharvona Zachur Latov, or Vagam Charvona Zachur Latov, that also Charvona should be remembered for the good. Now, the reason why this is fascinating is that the Gemara, or the Midrash, I forget which one, but it's also brought down in the Torah Tamima, says that really Harvona was desperate. He really was a Balavero. He was really not a good guy. But he saw that once Haman was losing, I'm going to benefit nothing from having known the information, from having counseled with Haman about this idea with Mordechai. I better let the cat out of the bag and show that I'm on Mordechai's team and not on Haman's team. So that's all Pipashib shot. Believe it or not, the Ibn Ezra says, perhaps that Charvona was really overtaken by Eliyahu Anavi. Eliyahu Anavi was Charvona in disguise. And, and he was coming to perform this miracle to save Mordechai and to, 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 to knock down Haman. And this will also give a, 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 some more significance to Zachur Latov, which we know Eliyahu Anavi Zachur Latov. So, what, what, how exactly are we supposed to relate to Harvona? Is Harvona worthy of good memory? We, should we remember him for good if he was not such a great guy? And maybe the lesson is of, you know, we think about Adelo Yada, Ben Ur Hamel Baruch Mordechai. Maybe it's not just them, but it's also Harvona. The idea that. You could look at Harvona and say, hey, you're a bad guy, you didn't intend to help. But guess what? Haman didn't intend to help either. But 
you know, that um, Haman's obsessions led to the Jewish salvation. And you might say, yeah, but you know what? Haman's also wanted to curse and kill the Jews. But we'll answer back that didn't have to be Haman. If the Bnei Israel were going to Ahasuerus' party and embracing idolaters, so they would have suffered anyway, even if not at the hands of Haman. In fact, the whole transfer of the ring we said earlier between Ahasuerus to Haman was so that the Jews would do tshuva. So what does this show you? Even the people that are not so righteous, we can actually, in a certain sense, realize that they were catalysts of a greater geula. The kimu v'kiblu, that our rededication to Torah that was supposed to happen. All the little Eliyahu Anavis here and there that are sent. We think the story, we look at the Megillah, we think the story is about Mordechai and the story is about Haman and Haman wanted to kill the Jews and ultimately we were saved. That's, you know, that, that's the surface part of the story, but we know with Purim you always got to look under the mask, there's always something more. And in fact, here's the point. And if you, you know, you made it this far, so, so get, get this point. The whole purpose of Haman being our, our antagonist was because we were on such a low level from the, the, the Averis that we were doing that we needed a Haman to wake us up. And Mordechai just brought that to light. Again, lauding Mordechai, the actual hero, because he was the one. Yes, he triggered Haman. But he only triggered Haman to take us on a journey, to take us on a scare that we were already putting ourselves into by going to Ahasuerus' party. And he just brought it to the forefront. He got us to do tshuva from everything. That's what saved us. And what's the proof? The proof is that you have an Eliyahu Anavi coming out to save Mordechai at the very end. This Eliyahu Anavi is a charvona. It doesn't really matter. Yad Hashem wanted Mordechai to be saved and not just saved, but lauded for reawakening our dedication to Torah, for being our hero. And yes, with Esther Hamalka as well. The two of them together, realizing, why was I put here? Why am I privy to this information? Why am I situated the way I am? It's because there's a hashtadlis that we have to do. And part of that hashtadlis is to understand that retribution and ruination, if we deserve it, can come from anywhere. And yet, revach v'hatzala, Yeshua, Geula, can come from anywhere as well. And we have to, if we're in the position to engage in a shalos, to save Klai Yisrael, to do a mitzvah, sometimes even to maybe engage in an Avera Lishma to save Klai Yisrael, sometimes we're in that position, that's what we have to do. Otherwise, we have to have bitachon and know that Hashem is the one in charge and it's our dedication to Torah that's going to keep us safe all the time for all generations. So now we finish, once again, just like Layhudim Haisara Vesimcha Vesasam Vikar Lanu. Hopefully you have a better understanding of the Purim story. Thanks for joining us in this journey that we called Purim Panorama. And you should all have an absolutely wonderful Purim filled with Simcha, filled with Yeshuos, and Geulos, and Bezras Hashem, the coming of the Gulub and Herbimeo.